0: Welcome to the Beltway Outsiders Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Vaughn. I'm a lawyer, columnist for the Conservative Institute, and a contributor in many places where I cover everything from politics, law, and culture. I send out a Friday newsletter each week full of political analysis and the best articles I've seen that week. You can sign up and get all my columns, articles, and podcasts delivered right to your inbox each week by going to thebeltwayoutsiders.com and clicking on the sign-up link, or you can use the links in the show notes, which are available at any time by clicking on them for this or any episode. And finally, if you like what you hear here, please make sure to subscribe and leave a review. If you listen on the website, that's great, but it'll be better for the show if you went to iTunes, Google Play, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcast and leave those reviews. Those five-star ratings help new listeners and readers like you find us, and I always look forward to reading them. And as always, if you can't leave a review because some of the platforms don't allow it, sharing the podcast with others on social media, email, and elsewhere is usually how we grow anyway, and I always appreciate hearing back from you guys when you do that. In this week's show, we're going to talk through the assault that's happening on free speech through social media on a global level. China is arresting people for what they've posted on Twitter, and France wants new regulations on social media, and of course, you know what's happening here in the United States. There were a pair of news articles in the Wall Street Journal that were nearly side-by-side as I was reading through them, and I thought it was something to see them quite side-by-side, so we'll talk through those and go through that. In the second segment, the COVID-19 update segment, we're going to talk through the latest news on all the numbers, as well as the latest news on the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. They released results this past week, and I thought they were pretty great, and they needed to be covered, since I've talked about it so much. And then the light item this week is a fun sea shanty about Reddit and GameStop and all the... GameStop and all the... Fun stuff that's happening through there. So that is the agenda for this week's show. So we'll jump right in. And I mentioned just a little bit ago that we're going to talk through social media here. And I was reading through the Wall Street Journal over the weekend. And they had two stories that were positioned. They weren't side by side, but you flip the page and there was the other one. And I wanted to lead off on them just because it, it was a little different to see these two highlighting two different countries both doing or wanting to do the same thing with regards to speech and social media. And the two headlines that that sort of kind of give away everything were this. So the first headline was this. China is now sending Twitter users to prison for posts most Chinese can't see. More than 50 people have been jailed in the past three years in an escalation of Communist Party assault on use of foreign social media. Now, that shouldn't be surprised to see something like that out of China. I think you would expect to see a headline like that where they are imprisoning people for using things like Twitter, Facebook, or something else, where they're talking about negatively about the Communist Party in China or just criticizing things that they've done. So, 50 people have been arrested on for, who have been using things like Twitter. So, that's the first headline. The second headline reads as follows. Francis Macron calls for regulation of social media to stem, quote, threat to democracy. French leader says West needs to act to rein in political extremism. So in the West, in France, you have calls to regulate social media because the speech that is coming out there is apparently a threat to society. So in one country we have the authorities cracking down on the use of social media, and in another country we have calls for regulations to crack down on speech on social media because it's a threat, quote-unquote, threat to democracy. So it's just kind of weird when you see one where it's sort of positioned. It's clearly you're, you're when you see people are being arrested, It's it's being framed as a negative story. And I would agree with that. That is a bad thing. You don't want to be people being arrested. But on the other side here, you have France, a European nation, generally considered part of the Western tradition, where you're talking about people who believe in free speech and the spread of ideas. And they're wanting to shut down platforms or shut down speech on platforms that they deem too extreme to be allowed on there. And it's sort of this juxtaposition that shows, well, this is a similar impulse coming from both sides of this political spectrum. And it's kind of troubling to see that. So in the story about China, the Wall Street Journal's reporting said this. Chinese authorities have sentenced more than 50 people to prison in the past three years for using Twitter and other foreign platforms, all blocked in China, allegedly to disrupt public order and attack party rule according to a Wall Street Journal examination of court records and a database maintained by free speech activists. The growing use of prison sentences marks an escalation of China's efforts to control narratives and strangle criticism outside China's cloistered Internet. In the past, the suppression of views on foreign social media was enforced mostly through detentions and harassment, rarely by imprisoning people, human rights activists say. Court records cited offending speech ranging from criticism of state leaders and the Communist Party to discussions of Hong Kong, the northwestern region of Xinjiang, and the democratically ruled island of Taiwan, which Beijing claims as its territory. Among those whose Twitter accounts remained online or whose followings were cited in court records, their followers were typically numbered in the hundreds or low thousands, though one had fewer than 30 followers when he was detained. So this is pretty draconian here, because these aren't people with large followings we're talking about here. These are just your small-time people who have small accounts who have criticisms that they put out on social media. If you have, have you ever criticized your state or federal government on social media? That would be enough in China to get you harassed or potentially imprisoned. So that's what's happening there. The, the journal then goes on to interview people who have been arrested for criticizing the Communist Party's handling of COVID-19, in fact. And then... And the irony of all this, of course, is that the Communist Party has a slew of number of accounts on here that spread just countless numbers of propaganda that you can find anywhere, blasting the West, promoting China, attacking individuals in the United States they call them their version of hawks and their in their foreign policy hawks and they and they attack America in particular every day, especially throughout the Trump administration. They were constantly lying and harassing various individuals. But you know, even while this is deplorable, in every last sense of the word, and we shouldn't want this kind of censorship or this kind of brutal treatment of people just for speaking out, it's also not unexpected. This is something you would expect to see coming out of China, unfortunately, because this is what they do. We know they lie on a regular basis and we know people are jailed. We know they we know we've lost touch from doctors who were sounding you know warning sending warning signals up about COVID-19 very early on and China tried to tamp down on them and some of them ended up dead. So this is what China does. We expect this from them. But it was the juxtaposition of that article on China against this one in France that really stood out to me. So, here is the Wall Street Journal again, and this is their story on French President Emmanuel Macron ta- calling for social media regulation. So, this, this article starts out and says, French President Emmanuel Macron called for international regulation to curb the spread of ideological extremism in Western democracies, chiding tech companies and political correctness for allowing it to flourish. Speaking to a group of reporters inside the Elise Palace, and I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that because I'm nowhere near to being French, Mr. Macron said the storming of the U.S. Capitol was a sign of the West's failure to rein in social media platforms, allowing them to become incubators of hate, moral relativism, and conspiracy theories. The French leader chided tech companies, without naming them, for giving former President Donald Trump a platform to, quote, spread hate for years before taking action. Quote, all those who allowed the President Trump to succeed waited until they were entirely sure that he had no power left to wrap themselves in dignity and now say, quote, let's take away his whistle, Mr. Macron said. He continued, Why didn't they shut down his accounts before all this happened? Uh, Mr. Macron said governments had delegated too much authority to tech companies by expecting them to act as stewards for Western qu- democracy. Quote, This is an issue for real international regulation. And it goes on where he they have more quotes saying more things, but you, you get the gist of it there. He wants... International regulation, so all the countries banding together to regulate tech companies and regulate the kind of speech that that can be on there. So it's not just you, you know you will get on a network and. You know, you see Americans saying one thing or French saying another. Everybody is is unified in saying they can only do certain things. And, you know, there are terms of service that everyone lives under, but this would put a law, an international law, on all those services where everybody is constrained under the same thing. So this makes this argument a little bit different here because normally when you're talking about what these platforms are doing in the United States it's what they allow in their terms of service and things like that. So you know, I had a friend just this past weekend who ended up getting flagged as saying hate speech and it was clearly Facebook's algorithm because all he did was was we were we were joking around, we somebody shared a comment a comic where the the male in this comic had a just destroyed department. Or, I mean, a destroyed bathroom in this case. There was just paper towels everywhere, and so he quoted in German, "Men are pigs." Well, that got blocked as hate speech automatically. By the way, this was no one in the group, but it got flagged automatically as hate speech by the algorithm. When, ironically enough, though, in that same conversation. Another person had used a hashtag, men are slobs, and that did not get flagged. That was fine, but if you stated in German that men are pigs, that got flagged. So that was sort of an interesting thing. Couldn't do anything for them. We both agreed that it was just silly. But that's the kind of thing where they're wanting to do it internationally and at a larger scale everywhere, where you're not only are you breaking the terms of service in a given community but you would be breaking some form of a law. And so that's what takes this up from merely a private company doing something into now you're dealing with a legal thing. And that's that is troubling here. Because then you're giving the state the legal authority to step in and regulate certain kinds of speeches on these platforms and that is really really bad. Now, what he's talking about here, what what the friend uh, Macron is talking about his regulation and things like that, some of this has already been tried, specifically in the United Kingdom. And they they actually have active laws here. They've arrested thousands of people under the 2003 Communications Act. And there have been stories of people getting questioned by police at their work over tweets they've sent. You can, I mean, you can, if you wanted to go down the rabbit trail on that, you can just Google people who, you know, United Kingdom people who have been arrested due to tweets and go through all the horror stories that they have. Because there, there are many over there because you can get into some really Aurelian stuff where if you say anything off on social media, all of a sudden the police step in because they monitor this stuff. And so you they can end up questioning you. There have been people who have been fined. People have been sent to jail. Some of it is truly vile, what some people have said. But other things, it's just you're, somebody was bad and they said something and now they're in trouble with the police. So there are all kinds of things here where you're seeing this kind of desire for speech regulation pop up. Now, in the United States, because we have the First Amendment and because it's written down, that is the key part here. It's not some case law. It's an actual, it's written down and you can't change it just through sheer legislation. If you want to change it, you've got to go in and pass a constitutional amendment, which is very hard. So in the United States, I'm not as worried about a government law coming into effect, which impacts What the government can say hate speech is. I am, however, concerned that a private company can define hate speech however they want, which some of them are doing. Facebook is clearly doing that. Twitter is clearly doing that. They're all doing this differently. What is offensive on one is not going to be offensive on the other because no one can agree to what hate speech is. That is what you learn when you get into American law. We looked at this in the law, and all the the judges on the Supreme Court basically said the same thing. We don't know how to define hate speech in a way that doesn't bring in political speech, religious speech, or anything else. It's impossible to do, so we're just going to allow it and allow the marketplace of ideas take over. So... You have these desires for regulation happening here, right next to a story where China is literally imprisoning people for speaking out. So you've got China arresting people for criticizing, over, it, and on the other hand, you have the United Kingdom and France looking for ways to sort of take on similar types of powers. This should be troubling on some level, because we clearly look at China and say, well, that's wrong. But it's wrong in France and the United Kingdom for the exact same reasons. You shouldn't want the government having that kind of power. So on all sides now, you have either the government arresting people or wanting to regulate people, or on the private side, you have these companies trying to define the hate speech, or you have you know, these mobs that break out on Twitter and Facebook and more, or people are trying to cancel each other, get people fired, and destroy each other's lives for something that they said on social media. And again you could say well the common denominator here is social media but in reality these types of controls this is something governments have always asked for if it's you know in some generations it's the press or books or tv or radio now it's social media it's not the technology that's driving this although algorithms are driving some of the things that are whipping people into a frenzy that is definitely part of what's happening here but the actual speech itself should just be allowed, unless it's just it's flagrantly illegal. Things like, you know, calling for somebody to be murdered or something like that. And I get in this past month people have said these, ne- these platforms should not have allowed Donald Trump to quote-unquote incite violence on there. I think that's a difficult connection to make, just legally speaking. Yes, what he said was abhorrent, but it's hard to make the connection to that and because incitement has a pretty defined legal thing. You have to basically be saying go do this thing to this person. It's not just I think this was bad. I hate everything here. It's got to actually be pretty targeted and direct. And so the incitement argument as I've pointed out several times is weak. It just doesn't have the teeth that a lot of people are pretending that it has. But it is trouble altogether just to see all this sort of circling together here because you have a a private market side thing happening in the United States, and then outside the United States, it's more of a government-led thing. You have China arresting people, you have France looking to regulate and be able to arrest people, the same way that it's happening in the United Kingdom. And so it's a troubling development if you believe in the necessity of free speech in a free and pluralistic society because... In order to have a fully functioning society, people should be able to speak out and say what they want. That is the key to a functioning democracy, the ability to say and vote for whoever you want to do. And when you start attacking that, you're attacking one of the fundamental essences of what it means to have a democracy. There are a lot of efforts right now, especially in elite media on the left and right, attacking extreme members. So on the right, on the on, in elite right wing circles, you have people attacking one of the new congresswomen from Georgia, um, Taylor Green, I believe is her last name. I don't remember her full name. Anyway, she's a full QAnon supporting person. She is a when it comes to that kinds of stuff, she's just a nutcase, straight up. She believes all kinds of crazy things, and she is truly a crazy person, and so what they're trying to do is to force her out of society. Well, I mean, and the same thing is happening if you look on the left. The right has targeted people over there, too. You have basically every member of the squad and a few of the other crazy people over there where they think they need to be kicked out of Congress, too. The thing is this. If you have a Congress. If you have a house in particular; it's already got 354 members in it. If you expanded it, which I think needs to happen, and you went up to a thousand, you're going to get nutcases in there because, as a, just a general cross section of the American public, there are nutcases. People believe crazy things. Go if you go into the January 6th thing, where people were storming into the Capitol. Some of the people who got arrested were state legislators places from West Virginia, just all over the place. State legislators were there at the U.S. Congress going into the Capitol, meaning that they were doing so, So people who are elected represent some of the general, just erratic things that you're going to find in American society. You're just going to get that. And that's fine. That is At the end of the day, that is actually fine because it gives those crazy people an outlet and makes them believe that they have buy-in in the entire system. You actually need that to have political legitimacy from all groups to so let everyone say, we actually have a chance to advance our ideas and we can get into elected office with that. And that's fine. If you give people that outlet, it lets them say, We buy into the system too, we want to be a part of everything. When you start shutting down both speech and access and try to kick people out, that's when you start alienating people from the political system. And that's where things get dangerous. When you start talking telling people, No, you can't, we don't want you in the political system, we don't want you part of the party, we don't want you to be elected, we're gonna kick you out, we're gonna do all these things. When people start believing fully and deeply that the system is truly rigged against them, that is going to give them the rationale in their heads to be able to do something extreme. That's what gives that to them. And so you want people like these crazy people to get into office because it allows the other crazy people to say, well, the system is good. We can buy into this. Yes, you need to sideline them as much as possible if you're a sane and rational human being. But having them elected is not a bad thing because it ensures that everyone, even the crazy people with their crazy ideas, have political buy-in. And so coming back here to the speech angle here, when you're seeing all these different things from the private industry to government action abroad where they're trying to silence various kinds of dissent, That is a bad thing long-term, because what they see is the immediate threat. They say, well, you had that January 6th event, and you had that incitement, so we've got to stamp down on it. Well, all you're doing, you're not getting rid of that speech. You're just kicking it off that platform, and people do it in private. You don't get rid of speech. The best thing to do is to engage it and defeat it in an open market of ideas. And so all these thoughts came up, of course, as I was sitting here, reading through the Wall Street Journal, looking at these two stories, sitting there and side by side, and this is a dangerous road for free speech long term. We have to defeat this, get these governments to not do this, you need to talk and get these these platforms to stop trying to regulate speech. I don't think that's going to happen. They have decided this is the way they're going to do it. So what's going to happen now is they're just going to get punished through antitrust law. That's the most immediate thing. They're going to get popped that way. At this rate, if they're going to continue regulating like this, I don't have a problem with them getting popped with antitrust and getting broken up. I don't know how successful it will be, but it hits them where it really matters to them, which is their pocketbooks. So that's where we are. We've got to stem the tide for this anti-speech movement, because you need people buying into the system and believing that they have a place in Congress, have a place at the political table, being able to talk. People have to buy in. That gives everything political, legitimacy long-term, and that is a very key aspect to having a functioning democratic republic. So that's all I've got on those two stories. I'm going to take a break right here, and then we'll jump into the COVID-19 update on the other side. The data this week in the COVID-19 update is again trending all in the right and a good direction. Just on a pure data point, with the exception of one key area, and that'll be the deaths category, every other data point from testing all the way through vaccines is good. This is one of the few times in a very long time where I can just say just about everything is good and hopefully here in the next few weeks we will start to see downward trends on deaths as well. So starting off at the top, testing remains at around all-time average highs in the 1.8 to 1.9 million tests per day, with some days we go above 2 million, some days we're below 1.8, so it all averages out to about 1.8 to 1.9 on a given week. So testing is becoming less important just because it is so steady, but it's still good to see us staying that steady at that level. Of those tests, new daily cases coming in are continue to drop off the side of a cliff. Last week I said to be a good sign if the seven-day average on new cases dipped below 150,000, and as of today that average is at 145,000. Now remember, we peaked in the seven-day average at nearly 250,000, and we had a single-day high that nearly hit 300,000. So to be below 150,000 in the averages and falling, mind you, it is going. Going down just about every day that 's a great sign so if you, you look at the previous high on the seventy average of two hundred and fifty thousand and look at where we are now we 've lost around forty percent of where we were, so we 've seen a drop in cases of about forty percent or more. The positivity rate, which is how many tests come back with a positive COVID-19 result, that also continues falling. At the first of the year, when we were at our peak, it was at 13.7%, and now it sits at 8.2%. So it just continues falling and going down as well. So what this means, when the po- when your testing remains solid like this and the positivity rate is going down, that means that the virus is slowing in its spread. Now, 8% is still too high. I would like to see this go down to some of our other low points when we were around 45 to 5%. But still, seeing it fall by this much is a extremely good sign, and so watching this number collapse is one of the best signs that we have, and it tells us that the virus is slowing down right now. We also hit a big milestone this week on Sundays to be specific, and that was on the number of active hospitalizations those have finally fallen below 100,000 for the first time since December 1st, 2020. So we've been almost 2 months above that number. We had a peak of around 133,000 on the 1st of the year, and right now we are at 95,000 13 active hospitalizations. So we've seen a dramatic turnaround from that from the beginning to the end of the months. So we're making great progress there. But as I said, the one stat where we're not improving And frankly, where it's just going to take some time, and I wouldn't expect us to improve right now, and that is deaths. Those continue to stay plateaued at around 3,100 deaths per day, and it's not really moving. You see slight fluctuations up and down, but we've mostly stayed above the 3,000 mark, which is our all-time high for deaths. And again, I don't expect that to change. So until you see hospitalizations sufficiently come down from those highs. 100, coming below 100,000 is great, but we really need to, in order to see a, a dramatic decrease in the number of deaths, we need hospitalizations to fall below the previous peaks in the spring and the summer. And those were around 60,000. So we're at 95,000 now. We still have another 35,000 to go before we hit the peaks of where we were before. So deaths are going to remain elevated for some time here just because the number of hospitalizations is so high and the number of people who can get this and die from it are so high right now. So once that comes under control a little bit and we see cases fall down a little bit more you'll start to see deaths finally be reflected here but Deaths are very much a lagging indicator, meaning that they are going to be the very last data point that is going to change as opposed to everything else. So we're slowing down the cases, we're slowing down the hospitalizations. Eventually that's going to be reflected in the death rate, but until we work through this backlog of hospitalizations, I don't expect much change on this part. We may, if we get closer to the two thousand if we get closer to that sixty thousand hospitalizations mark, if things keep keep trending in the right direction, you might see this fall closer to two thousand, but that remains to be seen at this point. Because we really have to work through this backlog of just all these hospitalizations that we've had for such a long period of time. Now, fortunately with that, out of that hospitalizations number, more people are recovering than they are dying from it, so that is a good thing. But still, this remains a very high number. So the total number of deaths sits at 432,000. I imagine we're going to come close to, if not go over, the 500,000 mark. I don't know when that's going to be because it's going to depend pretty heavily on when we can get this death rate to come down. So those are all the basic data points on COVID-19. Moving into the new set of data, which is vaccinations, all those numbers continue to improve as well. And they are improving basically every day. The United States has administered 31.8 million vaccination doses. uh, That's across the country. That includes first and second doses. We're averaging 1.35 million doses a day since January 20th, we've hit a minimum of 1 million doses administered every single day and we've hit a single day high of 1.7 million this past week, which that was a goal that I thought we could hit this past week. I thought we could hit maybe a one day high of around 1.75. So to hit 1.7 is a very, very good sign. If we can do that again this next week or hit closer to 2 million, if we can hit 1.8 to 1.95 in that range, that would be a very good sign that we can grow into the 2 million vaccination range, which is getting closer to where we need to be. We need to hit 3 million vaccinations a day. If we can do that, then the entire country, if it wants to, can be vaccinated in six months. We aren't going to need that. So the more doses that we we crank out a day, the more people who are going to be fine. So we are hitting very good metrics on the vaccinations front we've used 63.8% of all of our doses around the country. 7.8% of now the country is now has received at least one vaccination dose and 1.8% has received two doses completing their back total vaccinations. So that total completed so if you're looking at the people who have had their two doses, that comes out to 5.82 million people who have had two doses. So we are making very, very good progress here. The you know thirty, nearly thirty-two million people who have a vaccination dose in them. I think them, all these people who have had a vaccination, and lowering the transmission rate of the of the, the virus. I think that is going a long way to dropping these numbers. So really, the more the more shots and arms we can get, the better off we're going to be in the long term. The best state in the union at vaccinations is probably West Virginia, just because they are consistently staying above using 80% of their overall supply. And what's impressive about West Virginia is just where they're having to do it, because they have a lot of rural areas, and they are really pushing those vaccinations out into those rural communities and doing a fantastic job at it. If you're just looking at the best overall, just the highest numbers, the best state would probably be California, just because they have the most doses, they've administered the most doses, and they're staying, they're in and around 60% of the using, of 60% of a usage rate of their overall s- supply, so California has really rebounded. And that is a good thing because they have so many people there. So the big news this week, just aside from all the numbers, is that we now have five vaccinations from five companies. We have Pfizer, Moderna, AstraZeneca, Novavax, and now Johnson & Johnson. We have five legitimate vaccines that we can deploy, and the more that we can deploy, the more it's going to crank out more supply for us to use, and the more supply that's out there, the more people we can get vaccinated, and the more people we can get vaccinated rapidly. So the Johnson & Johnson one is the one I was going to focus on this week because it is the newest one on the Johnson and Johnson vaccine, which I've been high on now for several months, just based on what they've said, and also the fact that it's a one-shot vaccine. It's based on the actual virus all these things have sort of come together to show that that it has a very potent potential to really bring down numbers. The fact that you only have to store it in basically a refrigerator instead of a deep freezer is another key thing because you don't need fancy equipment with it. It's, it's just a standard vaccine, and a lot of places are, are equipped to handle that kind of thing. So the, the top-line report that everyone was quoting about it, it was... The top line number on it, it, what people are reporting is true, but it's not the entire story on this. So when you see the other major vaccines, the Pfizer Moderna ones, you see 90% effectiveness rate, which is fantastic. That is an absolutely fantastic rate and is great to have that. The Johnson & Johnson one, the top line on it, its effectiveness rate, it's 72% effective in the United States and 66% effective everywhere else. So everyone basically is looking at it and saying, well, it's not quite as effective as these, as these other ones. And that's not quite true. It's probably... It could actually be more effective than them. So what, what this is measuring is the effectiveness of it preventing an infection after the first 28 days. The thing about the Johnson & Johnson vaccine is that the longer that it's in your system, the more powerful your immunity to this virus gets. So this thing... Uh, overall, and this was from their press release, it was effective overall at preventing moderate to severe COVID-19 28 days after vaccination. And the most important part of it is this, it was 85% effective overall at preventing severe disease and demonstrated complete protection against COVID-19 related hospitalizations and deaths as of day 28. So after 28 days, Pfizer could not I mean not Pfizer, Johnson and Johnson did not find a single severe disease or hospitalization or death with a person who had this vaccine after 28 days. Everyone who got the vaccine didn't end up in the hospital, nor did they die from COVID-19 complications, and that protection grew over time. Johnson & Johnson noted in their in their press release, it, they said, efficacy against severe disease increased over time with, quote, no cases and vaccinated participants reported after day 49. So it's not just that it was protecting against it's not just as protecting against severe cases. If you really let it build up over time and gave it that time that it needs, after basically two months, 49 days, they didn't find any cases. So the first month, it knocked out all case, all severe cases and hospitalizations. After two months, it knocked out all the cases. So when they're talking about this 66 and 72% thing, what they're talking about are the first two to four weeks here where you have this vaccine in your system. That is when you're still the most vulnerable to being able to get the virus and even have a a, a bad case of it. What is promising about this is that the more you let it build up, the better it gets. It just keeps making your immune system stronger and stronger and stronger to the point where they not only did they not see any severe cases, after two months, they didn't see any cases. That's the exciting thing about the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. It's that it's easy to store. It's one shot, so if they promise us 100 million doses or 2 million doses, like 200 million doses like they've us, that's 200 million people that are vaccinated. With all these other two-shot vaccines, you kind of have to cut that number in half because the other people are going to need two shots. With this one, they produce 200 million shots. That's 200 million people who are, in fact, vaccinated. And again, like I said, it's easier to store. And if you give it time to really kick in and let your immune system really take hold of it, the results are spectacular. So the people who got the vaccine and then got the virus, they were getting it within the first month or so, usually the first two weeks. So, the more time you give the human body to build up that immunity, the more likely it was that you were immune from the virus. And it might be best against all the other various strains, too, because it was they noticed that it lessened severity of the symptoms of other foreign strains. So Johnson and Johnson said in their release. The COVID-19 vaccine candidate demonstrated complete protection against COVID-related hospitalizations and deaths 28 days post-vaccination. There was a clear effect of the vaccine on COVID-19 cases requiring medical intervention, and by that they mean hospitalizations, ICU admissions, ventilation, and more, being oxygenated and all that kinds of stuff, 28 days post-vaccination. So what's important with this vaccine is that it drove a stake through the worst cases. And that's fantastic because if you do that, that means overall deaths are going to fall and the load on the healthcare system is going to fall. That means your doctors and hospitals are not going to be seeing the number of patients that they normally would without a vaccine. And that's the most important thing here because all the interventions that we've done, everything that we've done, flattening the curve and everything, All of that is about lessening the load on the hospital system and spreading out cases over time. And if you look at those initial models from last March, last April, the prediction was pretty clear. If we didn't shut things down, you were going to have millions of cases within that first month, which could lead to millions of deaths. And we've avoided that. We have avoided that scenario through our interventions, and that is a good thing. And if a vaccine like Johnson & Johnson's comes out, as it has here, and it basically drops your your severe cases to near zero, that means that you can effectively reopen society. Because at that point, this virus is no longer a distinct public health threat. People may get symptoms. They may get sick but they're not going to end up in the hospital or end up dying from this disease. And that is the most important thing because if it's just a light or even a moderately bad illness, that's one thing. We can handle that. We have therapeutics to handle that. But if you don't have to send people into the hospital, you just send people and say, okay, stay home. Just deal with it there. You don't have to go to the hospital. That is a much better outcome. So all these these 130,000 hospitalizations that we've had, if you were able to cut that down to you know, just a, a few like ten to twenty thousand. That is a massive win, just a massive win. So the key here, for and this is true of the other vaccines too. The key is to get the vaccine and then give it time to build up immunity. That means you get the shot and then you continue to be safe. You wear a mask, you wash your hands, you you stay out of groups, all those sorts of things to give your body that opportunity that it needs to build up full immunity. And once it does that, then you're free. Then you can throw off your mask, you can throw it in the air, we're done. And ideally, I would say, you know, you probably want to give this, if you get this one, give it about at least a month to be safe. If you're unsure, give it two months, because by that point, you should have full immunity and you should be fine. So this is this is very exciting. I find Johnson & Johnson's work here extremely exciting. They have, I think, the best vaccine of them all. I'm very excited about the others too, especially Pfizer and Moderna's. The MRA technology that they're using is just fascinating long-term. There are promises that we could use that to potentially attack cancer. So there are all kinds of benefits to that. But just for the immediate term, Johnson & Johnson's, I'm, I'm very excited about what they've done here, and I think they've done a fantastic job. Uh, everything says that they're going to be applying for an emergency use application in early February. So if the Biden administration could fast track that vaccine through the approval process with the FDA, and they also do that with the AstraZeneca and Novavax vaccines, we could have five vaccines on the market by March that would be incredible. And if each one of them starts delivering their vaccines to the states, it is not beyond the question for the United States to hit herd immunity by summer and a really strong herd immunity too. But I mean the, the Johnson and Johnson vaccine is key to getting herd immunity fast, particularly because it's one dose. If you get that thing, you've got the vaccine, your dose thing is over with. So This is really, in my mind, this is the first major decision in the Biden administration and what they're doing with all these executive agencies. If they're really in this and when they want to prove that they're in this to win it, they need to fast track this through the approval process and lean on the FDA to approve this quickly. The Trump administration did this with Pfizer and Moderna, really trying to push them to approve it faster to get this out on the streets. And I, the Biden administration needs to do the same thing here because the approval process for an emergency use is far too slow with the FDA. That is something they need to change, and the Biden administration really should lean on them to get it out the door. So I, I'm if they get it, get them. If, you know, if you have this process started, we're in February, and you get the Biden administration really pushing on the FDA to get this thing approved, because we know all the information on it. Then by the end of February, first part of March, you could have these being cranked out to the public, and that would be a fantastic thing because. As Johnson & Johnson said, and as some of these other makers have said, they will be ready the moment they get that approval to start pushing these out and getting them supplied. They're not going to wait to create the supplies until after, after they're approved. They're going to do this the moment they get approved, doses move out the door. They're ready to do this quickly. We need the government to do the same. So There is plenty of good news on the pandemic front, especially on the vaccination front. We're still waiting for the death rates to fall, but every other data point is going the right way. We have two vaccines going at full throttle, and we should have at least one to two more on the market very, very soon. And you have to remember here, the threshold for herd immunity starts at 60%. This is a moving target here. We don't know what the exact herd immunity number is for COVID-19. You've heard, we've heard Fauci say as high as 90%. That is the highest threshold that you would need for something like measles. We probably do need something higher since this is such a contagious virus. But 60% is usually the basic number that you need to hit for herd immunity. And if we have that, you're going to see numbers drop dramatically because the population and the capacity for this thing to spread quickly is going to go down very, very quickly. So I think we could hit that sometime in April, and we could start talking about higher thresholds of herd immunity by the summer. At the latest, if this somehow gets dragged out for any reason, then you start pushing things off into the middle of the summer by June, July. So I I really think the Biden administration needs to lean on the FDA, get these things out the door, and get people vaccinated. So everything is picking up pace and looking very good on this front. So All those stories, by the way... Uh, of there being supply issues, you know, Cuomo said that he had supply issues with the federal government. You have some of these other local leaders saying they have it. I don't really believe any place that says that unless they have a usage rate usage rate of their vaccine statewide north of seventy five percent. If you've used more than seventy five percent of your of your vaccine supply, I believe you have supply issues. If you're sitting like some of these other states, sitting in the sixty percent or below range that means you still have quite a few vaccines that are available in your stash that you should be able to move out and if you're if you can't or if places are run out then that is a supply issue that is that is a there's not i mean that's not a supply issue that is a distribution issue you need as a state, as a governor, as a public health department in a state to move these vaccines where they need to go, because if somebody runs out, you need to have more there for them because if you know some of these counties may be better at moving it out than others. Some may be slower. We need to incentivize the faster counties to get through their more supply. and we need to speed up the slower one, because that is the key thing here. You need to vaccinate as many people as humanly possible. And sort of a, a really good story for how this is taking place in some places, the, the really good counties. There was a place in Seattle that had, I believe it's the Pfizer vaccine, which requires a deep freezer. And in the middle of the night, that one of their freezers broke. And so that meant that the vaccines were thawing and they had to be used immediately. So... They did an incredible thing in Seattle. They got nurses and everyone together, they put out a call, and they had people lining up in this hospital in the dead of night, in their slippers and pajamas, getting these vaccines, even though they weren't on any of the tiers, but giving these vaccines out just so they would not be wasted. Those health workers deserve a ton of credit for doing something like that, because that is the kind of that is the kind of attitude we need to have, which is get these things out the door, get these needles in arms, vaccinate as many people as possible, because that is how you're going to slow down this virus. So that was one of the better stories that I saw this week. I was very encouraged to see that. I hope we see many more stories like that there was another one in tennessee where at the end of the day the nurses had a few doses left and they didn't if they didn't use it they were going to throw it away so they gave it out to the subway employees right across the street and so those people they suddenly got a vaccine that they didn't know they were going to get and we need more acts like that no doses wasted to move everything out the door. And I don't believe there's a supply issue here just because if you look at the United States numbers, we have about 20 million unused doses across the United States. And if those are unused, that means that is a distribution issue and you need better distribution across the states. So just move it better, governors. That's what you've got to do here. You can't blame supply when you are the ones who are not distributing it properly. So aside from that, Everything is great. That is all I've got on the COVID-19 update for this week. Things continue to look up, but with that, we're going to move into the light item for this week. So the big news item this last week was the Reddit forum, Our Wall Street Ble- Wall Street Bets making the GameStop stock skyrocket. The internet memes around this were just glorious. They were hilarious on all accounts, but my favorite my absolute favorite was the fact that someone wrote and sang a pirate sea shanty describing these events. So there are a lot of inside jokes related here to Wall Street bets. They talk about attendees and other things. You may not get everything, but I, the song is great. I wanted to share it. So this is that song, and here they are singing about the gains they're getting from the GameStop sock.
1: There once was a stock that put to sea, the name of the stock was GME, the price blew up and the short stepped down, hold my bully boys hold. <laughs> Soon may the tendyman Man come to send our rocket into the sun. One day when the trading is done, we'll take our gains and go. She had not been two weeks from shore when Ryan Cohen joined the board. The captain called all hands and swore he'd take his shares and hold. <gasps> Soon may the Tendie Man come to send our rocket into the sun. One day when the trading is done, we'll take our gains and go. Before the news had hit the market wall street bets came up and bought it, it with diamond hands they knew they'd profit if they could only hold <gasps> soon may the men come to send a rocket into the sun one day when the trading is done we'll take our gains and go no deals were cut, no shorts were squeezed The captain's mind was not ungreed But he belonged to the artist's creed He took the risk to hold <gasps> Soon may the tennyman Man come To send a rocket into the sun One day when the trading is done We'll take our gains and go For forty days or even more The stock went up then down once more All gains were lost, it was looking poor But still those traders did hold Soon may the man come to send our rocket into the sun. One day when the trading is done, we'll take our gains and go. As far as I've heard, the fight's still on, the short's not squeezed and And the the gains not won. won. The man makes his regular call to encourage the captain, crew, and all. Soon may the man come to send our rocket into the sun. One day when the trading is done, we'll take our gains and go. Soon may the Tendi men come to send our rocket into the sun. One day when the trading is done, we'll take our gains and go.
0: I really, really enjoyed that. I've enjoyed the entire Pirate Sea Shanties meme as it's been happening across the internet. And so to see those two cross was a delight. And I hope you enjoyed it too. That is all I've got for today's show. Questions, comments, corrections, or feedback, you can reach out to me in the contact information in the show notes or hit me up on Twitter at d CI. Look for my next columns on Monday and Friday at the Conservative Institute and the newsletter goes out early Friday morning. So please make sure to sign up before that and you will get the next issue. Thank you for listening to this podcast and making it a part of your day. Remember, if you liked and enjoyed it, make sure to send in those five-star reviews and share us to help us out. I hope you tune in again, but until then, I am your host, Daniel Vaughn, signing off for this week, and I will see you guys in the next episode.